hello. Welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast. So this is a podcast where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barakoff, and this month I was lucky enough to spend an hour with the fabulous Candace Fox talking about her brand new crime thriller, The Chase. Now, I first met Candace at a writer's festival in 2019 and was struck by how generous she was with her experiences as a writer, which of course is exactly the kind of writer I want to bring to your ears on this podcast. Candace is knowledgeable on the craft of writing, yes, but she also has the best stories. We chatted more about the craft behind her writing in this podcast, but after this, go and have a listen to some of the stories of her very unusual childhood and her experiences as a writer interviewing serial killers. They're just fantastic. If you go to the about page on her website, candacefox.org, and scroll to the bottom, you'll find a link to her conversation with Richard Feidler, which is absolutely fascinating. In this interview, we went behind the scenes. We talked about Candace's drafting and editing processes, how she pitched the idea to her publisher, how she structured the novel with an A and B plot and multiple vignettes, the techniques she uses to make the reader care about the characters, how she goes about creating and maintaining tension, and of course, so much more. This is another hour-long interview. I think we just need to accept that this podcast has hour-long episodes. I can't seem to chat any less than that, but I'm okay with it, and I hope you are too. That's the beauty of podcasts though, isn't it? You can break it up if you like, or just binge the whole thing on a really long walk. That's what I tend to do. Now, remember, there can be spoilers in the podcast, although Candace and I don't reveal any of the big ones in this particular episode. But if you hate knowing anything about a book before you've read it, go read the book first and then come back and have a listen. You can buy a copy of The Chase in all the usual places. It's only just been released uh, as of April 2021, so you'll be able to find it easily. So a quick bio. Candace Fox's first novel, Hades, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Taboo in 2014 from the Australian Crime Writers Association. The sequel, Eden, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Crime Novel in 2015, making Candace only the second author to win those accolades back-to-back. Her subsequent novels, Fall, Crimson Lake, Redemption Point and Gone by Midnight, were all shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award. In 2015, Candace began collaborating with James Patterson, You might have heard of him. Their first novel together, Never Never, set in the Australian outback, was a huge bestseller in Australia and went straight to number one on the New York Times bestseller list in the US and also to the top of the charts in the UK. Their later novels, 50-50, Liar Liar, Hush Hush and The Inn, have all been massive bestsellers across the world. Not bad for a chick from Bankstown, which is where Candace was born and bred. To top it all off, Candace has two undergraduate and two postgraduate degrees. In other words, she's the perfect person to teach us one or two things about writing. Candace Fox, hello, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun, I think. I think so. We're going to take a deep dive into the writing process behind your brand new novel, The Chase. How's it going out there in the world? I've seen fantastic well, specials. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know when you're going to post this podcast, but by then we will have accepted a, a TV and film uh, deal for this. Oh, uh, so it's great. Yeah. And that's before it's out, even out in the US, which is, which is so awesome. 
I know. Incredible. Thank you. I can't wait to see this on the screen because it was a very visual book for me. I could see I could see it in my mind, which is not always the case. As a reader, I, I challenge anyone to say they didn't see this on the big screen as they were reading it because it's <laughs> very visual. You could you could really mm. see everything that was happening and imagine the characters. So that's okay. fantastic, especially coming on the back of uh, the Crimson Lake deal as well. Mm, yeah, so uh, that's that's happening in July. It's it's a, it's a couple of months away. I can't, you know, and and Thomas Jane and and his producer are booking their tickets and stuff and yeah. you, you sign the piece of paper that says, you know, someone wants to make this into a TV show and you go, "Oh yeah." And that's so sort of distant from the idea of standing there on the set with the actor and he's pretending to be someone that you came up with in your mind many years ago and uh, just I can't real that that I can't visualize I can't get my head around that but I suppose it's coming so I'll have to (laughs) I didn't know who Thomas Jane was until I saw it on your socials last week and I was like Mm. I've got to look this guy up he's perfect for Ted isn't he oh yeah I think so yeah I didn't realize how um anxious I was about who they would cast because somebody says to you oh you know who do you envision uh, playing Ted? And I go, bloody anyone, because I'm so lucky to have this happening at all. If you guys hired a hobo off the street to play him, <laughs> then I would be so grateful because I'm just so grateful for all of it. And then, you know, after a couple of years, they said, oh, we've, we've locked someone down and it's Thomas Jane. And I went, oh, thank God. <laughs> could have been anyone. I was like, oh, thank God. You know, and I, I, I've been watching Thomas Jane and stuff since I was a teenager. He actually stars in, you know, the, the, one of the films that defined my teenage years, uh, which was The Crow, City of Angels. I was a, a big goth and very into The Crow franchise and I must have watched him you know dozens of times in that film you know as a, as a sort of a 16 year old not realizing that one day I'd be sitting in front of a zoom <laughs> talking to him and trying not to bizarre. fangirl too much <laughs> I know I know what's it going to be like when you meet him in person like I don't Candace, know you're gonna have to really hold back Oh, God, because people say, oh, Candice is so confident and all this, but meeting someone for the first time is a big deal for me. I I never know whether to go for the handshake or the hug or the kiss on the cheek, hug combo and... And well, COVID's, ah. COVID's given us new rules, so you could always go yes. with a friendly elbow bump. You just wave from afar. Yeah. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> well, now, Candace, I've been a fan of yours since I first inhaled all three books in the Crimson Lake series over the one weekend a few years ago. And then last year during COVID, I got some time with you writing on Facebook of all places. Mm. A little invention of yours called Write Club, which was mm-hmm. a bit like Fight Club, but less fighting and more writing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us about Write Club and why you started it. Oh, you know, I felt lonely. I missed people and we were locked down and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of writers that I know were feeling the same thing. So I, I was sort of trying to encourage people to write together and there's also a part of me that wants to demystify writing because 
you hear very established authors talking about the muse and how you have to wait for the muse to strike and, and they make that sound like you have to have a particular type of genius in order to be a writer. And then I go on Instagram and I see these amazing writing rooms that people have and they say, oh, I have my cup of fancy tea and I go into my other world and all this. I, I wanted to sort of say, you know what, it's Candace in her messy office with no makeup on and bad lighting and she's being interrupted by the dog and, you know, she's eating biscuits and writing and there's nothing special about it. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to know someone. And also, you know, being a mother and all that kind of thing as well, it's like you don't have to carve out nine to five for yourself every single day. You can do it when you're tired. You can do it when you only have 20 minutes to do it. Uh, so there was that. I was trying to invite people into my world and, and, and say to them, you can do this too. Let's do it together. And it was such a, a generous gift to aspiring writers. Thank and, you. And just so delightful to read the dedication at the start of The Chase, which reads, for all the aspiring authors, never give up. Probably the bulk of people who follow me online are aspiring authors and then I get I get letters and emails and comments and things from aspiring authors. And when I was an aspiring author, I wrote to uh, uh, a bunch of authors and only two people ever answered me. One was Anne Rice and one was John Connolly. And they were saying, you know, oh, you know, never give up and, 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 and that kind of thing. And it just, I felt seen. Hmm. So I try to answer every single bit of mail that I get and if I have time, I sometimes look at samples from people. And over the years, I have recommended people to my agent. So I never have got anyone through, uh, <laughs> which probably says something about my taste. I don't know. But, you know, I'm just trying to be present, I suppose. And I had the time to do Right Club. I'm going to try and start it up again. But it's just really, it's just hard having a kid. And, and then it becomes promo season when a book comes out. So that throws everything out of whack and of course you know we had the lot the, the pandemic sort of put us all into our little caves and you were also on planet violet your gorgeous daughter yes. so you know <laughs> it, it, we had we had a bit more time for these sorts of things and now we're all back out there in the world and it's a bit harder to find mm. the time isn't it yeah the older she gets the easier it'll be i think to lock in something regular yeah but yeah i miss it and it also it also made me do my writing at a particular time. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so listen, uh, yeah, I was going to say. So in between casually nibbling on a Scotch finger bicky and calmly mm. sipping coffee and geeing all of us along and having a bit of a laugh, you were actually writing things like Homer Carrington stood in the side doorway with a sawn-off shotgun hanging from one hand. Assessing the damage through the gun smoke, he turned and looked at this blood and brain matter on the wall beside Cradle's head. And we were all just thinking that you were just, you know, tapping away and there you yeah. were talking <laughs> about serial killers and yeah. terrorists oh, blowing brain up. matter. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very dark on the inside and, and cheerful on the outside. I have had a very strange upbringing with a lot of crime involved and I'm drawn to very, very dark stories. But I think that I have this habit of 
dealing with trauma and dark stories with humour and cheerfulness. And that's kind of what I was going at when I wrote Amanda Farrell for the Crimson Lake series. You know, she's sort of sociopathically cheerful. <laughs> and I, I, I find myself locked into cheerfulness sometimes because I don't want to have real emotions and be vulnerable in front of the public. And then I also don't want to be a problem for people around me by having actual emotions. So mm. it's, it's mm. terrible <laughs> because I just bottle everything up and then I explode and have a massive crisis. And it's so predictable that the people around me, like my husband and my agent, my publisher, and they, they can sense it and they go, oh, Janice is going to have a big, a big bang. You're yeah. in a safe place when you do that. That's what counts, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And having an outlet in your fiction, I have to say, Amanda yeah. Farrell is one of the all-time great characters of fiction. Oh, thank She's you. just exceptional. Have do we know who's playing Amanda yet, or is that not still yet under wraps yet? Any day now, because yeah. they've got to give that actress time. But all so all I know about that is they had a long list of ninety, and then they cut it down to 30 and they've cut it down to again to six and then they were going to have those six ladies talk to Thomas Jane <clears throat> and see what the chemistry is like but I'm not even I'm not allowed to know who those six people are and I was like don't you know who I am <laughs> I'm <laughs> Tell me. yeah it's oh, going to well. take a special actor to play a mm. cheerfully what did you say a sociopathically cheerful, cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> detective and um, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and a very odd character. Yeah, I love her. Now, shall we take a deep dive into the writing process yeah. behind the cheats? Let's do it. Tell um, me what you want to know. Well, the listeners have delivered a few questions mm. to us. So our first question comes from Fiona Taylor, who says, "I am so excited to read Candace's new book. It sounds awesome." Oh, thanks, Fiona. Yeah, thanks, Fiona. <laughs> My question for Candace. How much does she plan when writing and does she have a basic plan to follow or does she plot in finer detail? Okay, all right. Well, see, I need two things before I write anything at all. Uh, so, And that's just mentally for me in my mind. I need, I need two things. The first one is a problem. You know, I say a problem because back in the day it used to be uh, a crime. I used to say to myself, who's killed who and why? Uh, whereas in the chase, it's not so, that so much. The problem is this mass breakout that's happened. Uh, so you need the major problem of the book and you need the the protagonist. Who are they as a person? Like what is their major malfunction, to be honest? Because the, the worst character, uh, main character that you can come up with is someone who's really gentle and nice and who had a, a great upbringing and who has no personal problems at all. <laughs> like that is that is vanilla pudding. That is as boring as, as it gets. So I need someone terribly unsuited to solve this crime. So and that's throughout my whole career I've written people who are just wrong for this crime at this time because I want to make it as difficult as I can for them to get what they want as a character. So with the chase I did that. So I have Osborne, who is the death row supervisor at Pronghorn, and she's exactly the wrong person to try and catch uh, any of these inmates because she's so messed up about what happened in her family and so prejudiced 
against uh, the guy that she's chasing, John Cradle. And and the, the problem was the breakout. So I started I started with the breakout as a concept uh, because my publishers had been saying to me, we want something, uh, you know, some big idea from you, some big high concept, something that you can pitch in a tweet, you know, uh, and you go, oh, okay, great. So what, what they're not wanting is the long, steamy, quiet self-discovery and, uh, you know, uh, small town dark secret type of thing they wanted something that's going to go bang and 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 you want to be able to read it like do you remember back in the day when you were going to the movies they used to print what was on at the movies in the newspaper and you'd sit there with your friends and you'd say oh we could see this and your friends would say what's it about and you'd read the little line (laughs) that's what you want is the little line you know and whatever it is it has to be really tasty and good and uh and that's that's how long you've got to impress people with your idea it has to be a different kind of idea and uh so i was sitting around and saying to myself what hasn't been done in terms of prisons i want to write a prison breakout story well we've done one person breaks out and we've done two or three people break out and we haven't really done a a a fugitive story with a woman so much but i've just written gathering dark which is so full of women uh Mm. i wanted a break and i thought what if everyone breaks out i've never heard of that before uh, and that's interesting, and that's a that's a big ass problem. That is big. <laughs> they, they wanted big, yeah. they got big. <laughs> they got big, yeah. So then, yeah, how do I plan it? I write it uh, as a pitch. So for a pitch or a synopsis or whatever you want to call it, it's one page where I put the idea down and I shop it to my agent, my publisher, my husband, and I get feedback. Is this an exciting concept to you? What are your questions that you have about it? What are your concerns? And it's a good way to kind of look at look at the whole idea on a single piece of paper and say, is this enough? Is this too much? You know, am I bleeding off the page into three pages? Just, just trying to explain what this is. And is that more external plot or on that one page do you go into the character arcs as well? Yeah, a little bit, a yeah. little bit, yeah. It's, it's an extended version of what you would see on the back of a paperback you know, so it's it's explaining to you who the character is, what the problem is, the major complications, you know. So I would mention John Cradle and Trinity Parker and the whole white supremacist that's going to be the major pursuit and the breakout itself. Mm. So I wouldn't go in and, and explain, oh, and there are a whole bunch of other vignettes and it's set yeah. in Nevada in the winter and this and that and these are the other complications. No, I just have like the major. Yeah. What is the A plot? What is the B plot? Who's assigned to it is what you want to appear on there. So the A plot for this is the breakout. And so how do you differentiate between <laughs> that kind of that that overarching plot and then the, the main plot is Celine chasing Cradle and Cradle yeah, trying yeah. to prove his innocence or not. Um, yeah, it's yeah. hard because this kind of has like A, B, C, D, E yeah, plots it to it. <laughs> so, so, so the major story here is the mass breakout orchestrated by the white supremacist who's going to kill again and you've got to catch him. That's the major yeah. overarching thing. And the minor, although it's not that minor, is John Cradle and Celine their little tango while he tries to, will he prove his innocence before she catches him? 
Uh, I'm writing one with Jim at the moment and it's got A, B and C plots to it, which A and B are probably the same weight and C is a bit lighter yeah. in terms of density, in terms of like how much time they take up in the book. Yeah, so I, I don't make a lot of notes. If I'm writing down notes and things about where the plot is going to go, it's probably because I've slowed momentum and I'm like, oh, where am I going to go next? And so I sort of plan it out for myself, like make some dot points. Before each writing session or is that kind of at the beginning of writing the novel? Usually I fire out of the cannon for the first 30,000 words and then at 30,000 words I show people because I've sort of slowed down and I'm like, oh, God, where do I go next? Is this any good? I'm lying on the couch calling myself a hack, taking some days off. People might as well look at it while I have this little mini crisis. So it's usually around then that I make a few more notes and then, yeah, it's that I find a middle hard Yeah, because you set up the problem, you set up the people, it's all exciting, and then you're in the middle and you're like, oh, I've, I've asked this question of the reader and now I just have to delay answering that for another, you know, 30,000, 40,000 words. How am I going to suspend, how am I going to keep everyone interested yeah. Yeah. <laughs> without giving them what they want? And then at the end, you finally give them what they want and you're like, here you go, you know? It's an, an exercise in coming up with ways to ramp up the tension and to keep mm. the stakes high, isn't it? I think there's a question about that a bit later. Now, Terry Green, who is an, a writing buddy of mine, actually, uh, she'd oh. like to know how long Candace spends on each draft. And somebody else asked a question as well. She said she listened to a podcast. She knows that you write fast. She's interested in how many passes you do, what shape the novel is in when you hand it to your editor. Okay, so from, you know, opening the document and starting the novel to, you know, writing the end, uh, at the moment it's probably like seven or eight months. In 2018 I wrote the fastest that I have ever written in my life and I wrote three novels that year. And, yeah, I know, it was insane, but I didn't have a child or anything like that. I was living in L.A. I was very excited by everything I was seeing and I was doing. So these days with a, a child, it's probably seven or eight months. What I do is, yeah, I just start at point A and I go all the way to point B. I don't skip bits and then come back and write it. I'm just very linear in the way that I write it. And I don't even put chapters in or anything like that. That comes later. I just go end scene, enter, new scene, and then uh, I just write it all in a stream. So you're very much writing in scenes? Yeah. Writing, yeah. Yeah. I was saying, I was talking to someone the other day and I was saying, oh, cut to this person, what's going on with them. Cut to that person. And she said, it sounds like a film in your mind. And I suppose it is because it's all cuts to me, I feel like you should be in the middle of the scene and stuff should be going on when you cut into it. And before the scene ends and everyone says, all right, see you next week then, okay, bye, all right, uh, you know, like and there's all that crap at the end of the scene that you don't need, you just cut at the, at the bit that's the most interesting really or the most cliffhangery or important. 
So seven or eight months, write the whole thing, get it looked at a bunch of times during that writing process. And then uh, when I send it in, I'm in the very privileged position of being an established writer with a very good relationship with my publishers. So uh, sometimes I don't even proofread it, <laughs> uh, which is very cheeky and it's scrappy. And I say to me, you always say that, you always say, here it is, but it's really scrappy and it needs work, but you'll get the idea and blah, blah, blah. It comes with all these caveats. So, But I'm so ready to just have a break from it at that point, not think about it and go and have a nice dinner out to celebrate the fact that I've written it, that I just go, here it is, you know. And they, you know, they look at it and they say, oh, I get what she's trying to do. So then I get a structural edit from the publisher which will take me three weeks or something. So with the, the chase, it was about three weeks? Yeah, I would say probably yeah. three weeks and uh, maybe a bit longer because I think part of that structural edit was her saying Ray Ackerman, the serial killer, who at the beginning he's sitting there eating his noodles and the breakout happens and he's like, oh, <laughs> geez, this is interesting. What am I going to do? I guess I'll just go outside that was all we had for him, but uh, she was very compelled by him as a character and she was like, I want to see more of that guy. So I, I added in, you know, four or five more vignettes with that guy. Uh, Which were fascinating because they were kind of chilling in their normality. Like he just yeah. goes and does these really normal things, accepts a lift with some kids and you think, oh, no, don't let him in your car. Yeah, well, that's sort of based on Lawrence, the serial killer that I, when I met Lawrence Bittaker, I had watched a documentary on him with all this old footage about when he was in his 30s and these murders that he committed. But when I met him, he was an old man. Mm, and mm. when I, I, I wrote to him for a couple of years and in those letters was that voice, that the voice of an old man who's very disparaging of the other inmates around him and who likes his little creature comforts he likes his little cooktop stove that he has in his cell and his pillow and if they bring in new pillows and they want everyone to change them out he's like that's annoying and and and, and he's just an old man but he's mm. a very dangerous and vicious and horrible old man on the mm. inside mm. and so i was just toying with that with that character no, yeah it's, it's really it is chilling isn't it so you get your structural edit back so that's your three mm -hmm. weeks and then you hop back into the document yeah added stuff in take stuff away there wasn't a lot that was taken away from the chase it was more things added in so the, I don't want to do any spoilers but the truth of what happened to John Cradle's family and that resolution at the end where you come up with, you know, who did that and why, they wanted more of that and more explanation and more conversation. And uh, so I added stuff in. And, and the whole time I'm saying to them, it's 105,000 words. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep going. And I'm going, it's 110,000 words. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going. You know, and that's why when we all got it in print, we went, oh my goodness, it's big, isn't it? And which is good because you go, oh, value for money. Yeah. It's not so big that you go, oh God, I don't have time to read this. You know, the, the book as an object, as you go on through publishing, you sort of analyze that a bit more and you say, how thick is it? How weighty is it? What color is it? You know, what does it suggest? 
Yeah. Um, well, you wouldn't have you wouldn't know it's that long. It's it's a real page turner. Mm-hmm. It seems to go really quickly. So well, that's lovely. Thank you. Oh, no, I'm not the only one that's saying that. It's all over the place. <laughs> Everyone's saying the same thing. I think you oh, might have okay. heard the word page turner a few times in the last couple of weeks since <laughs> release, Candace. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. In terms of the editing process, was mm. there a particular scene in the chase that changed dramatically between the first and last draft? You know, those opening chapters were extended and extended again and talked about a lot between all the editors. So we showed them to the US editors and they commented on them and because we really wanted to get that right because the breakout itself is so rich and tense and, you know, if I do say so myself. (laughs) But (laughs) they were like this, we've got to get this right because this is the bit that people are going to be talking about. And it was a really good marketing strategy because what we did is we printed just those opening chapters with the breakout and, and the guy on the phone says, I want you to let them out. And she says, who? And he says, everyone, like all of them. And you just cut it there, like cut. And then we printed that and then we gave it to all the bookstores and the bookstores were handing out that chapter and saying, just read this. That's what I would say to all aspiring authors is that that first chapter or section has to be the best because that's how much attention you're going to get from people who have already bought and read the thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's how much time you get to hook them. So before that, before you've got the publishing deal and you've got the book out, you're trying to hook publishers. So you get even less time than that, you know. So it's the first page that has to be, like, the best. And then beyond that, cut that page down. It's that first paragraph that has to be the best because all the way along the journey, you're trying to hook people, you're trying to hook people. Uh, I mean, when the book is printed and it's sitting on a shelf in a bookstore, you've got readers coming along and picking it up and flicking to the first page. And if you look at how a book is structured, usually it has chapter one and then half the page is blank and then there's that little paragraph at the bottom. That's probably all they're going to give you. They're going to glance at that. And if there's no problem or hook or interesting thing in there that makes them go, oh, yeah, Mm. like if you're describing a tree or something in that time, Mm. that's not going to make them go, I need to hear more about this tree, you know. (laughs) Like you've got to have that first line. So if you look at all of my novels, I have that first line. Like in Gathering Dark, I wrote that first scene where she gets robbed in the petrol station. I wrote it five times and I said to myself, what is wrong here? I have to write this scene and it's no good. I write it again, write it again, write it again. And I just said to myself, what's wrong here? And I I had like pregnancy brain. My brain was just broken at that point. I couldn't (laughs) think of anything. And I said to myself, there's all of this stuff where, where, uh, Blair is in the petrol station. She's doing a crossword. She's making a phone call. She's restocking the fridges in some of the drafts and someone comes in to rob her. And I was like, just cut to the bit where she's got the gun in the face, you know, gun in the face, line one. I looked up into the eye of a pistol. That's the first line, Mm. you know, and 
and and that's where the reader who's casually browsing picks it up and reads that and goes, oh, okay. <laughs> so who's got a gun in their face and why? Yeah. So with the chase, chapter mm. one, from where she sat at the back of the bus, the driver's death was a confusing spectacle to Emily Jackson. Mm. So hello, she's in the bus hello. and the driver's yeah. dead. But I, the next bit is what gets me. She had a good view down the length of the vehicle from her position leaning against a window smeared with the fingerprints of happy children. Uh-oh, mm. children, what? You know, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah immediately yeah. you're just like, yeah. oh, God, got to read on, got to find out what happens to these poor children. Yeah, I, I do that a lot where you, line one, you give them a taste of the problem mm. because I think if you have too much chaos, if it went straight from Emily Jackson saw the driver die and then I go straight into the death of the driver and blah, 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 and I haven't had enough time to describe who is Emily Jackson, why is she on this bus, who is on the bus, why is this moment critical and I just go into the death of the driver straight away, it's too confusing. People yeah. don't want unfolding chaos right there. So you just give them a taste that something bad is about to happen and then you ease into where am I, who am I, what's my environment, and you're telling the reader the whole time that chaos that I Promised. gave you a taste. <laughs> yeah, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. And then you don't leave it too long, you know, leave it a couple of pages and then you go, bang, there it is, and then everyone's screaming and then cut away. It's a fantastic first chapter. It sucked me oh, thank in. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I think it's important to recognise that when I say like action and chaos, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be that because if you're writing romance or drama or whatever, you can use the same strategy. Like you can say the day that my marriage ended, I was sitting on the balcony and, and you're saying to the reader, her marriage is about to end, like something mm. is going to happen. And then so you can go into the scene, who am I, where am I, blah, 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 enter the husband, sit down at the table, and then you know you've had that promise in line one that things are about to go bad and then you do it. So whatever the genre is, it doesn't have to be action and crime chaos. It, it's just emotional drama chaos, yeah. So... Make a promise. Make a promise in the first line and then deliver on it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, don't wait too long. <laughs> don't wait too people long, get, people. People get frustrated. Yeah. Because yeah. you do yeah. have to place the characters in time and space, but mm. you can't put a huge number of stage directions around that, can you? Yeah. People don't want to be patronised too, and I'll go into that in a second, and they don't, they don't have a lot of tolerance for not knowing who they are and where and when they are. And, and, and that's, that was difficult to do in the chase because every time I cut to a vignette and it's some dude sitting in a diner and you've got a paragraph to say to people, this is not John Cradle and it's not Celine, it's not anyone major, it's just this dude, this lawyer who's sitting in a diner. And, and then they settle in and they go, oh, okay. You know, this is where I am. And if you carry on describing the environment too much without letting people know why, then they get. But the thing about readers being patronised too is it's like I read a lot of aspiring authors' work and they're very good at describing where people are, but things have to happen. 
So don't patronise to me about a hipster cafe and describe every single aspect of it to me in this wonderful language. Just tell me that I'm in a hipster cafe. Say to me, say three things that will tell me that it's a hipster cafe, okay? The guy who's making coffees has a man bun and a pencil moustache you know, and tell me there's like polished concrete floors and exposed pipe work on the ceiling and tell me that the menu has, you know, like Smashed bloody whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I know I'm yeah. there. I know. You've got, a, you you've got an image. Going on and on. Yeah, I've got yeah. an image. And don't go over the top because people get frustrated and they're like, okay, what am I doing here then? Yeah, like yeah. who's who's here and why are they here and who's who's talking? That leads into my next question, which was you do have multiple points of view in this novel. And as you Mm. mentioned before, there are a few vignettes of characters who just come and go and we don't hear about them again. Mm. And others who are only in for maybe four or five chapters. But they're great (laughs) because they give you an idea of the stage that we're operating in and how menacing these escaped convicts are i mean if we only focused on two or three of them it it wouldn't give us the scale so my question is how do you get us into a new character and a new scene so quickly what what are the techniques you use to capture us and say look stay with me because i'm going to give you something here Mm. yeah i mean i read something from an aspiring author the other day and he He took a a long time to try to tell me who this character is and he went back to his, his, the guy's standing at a window and he went back to the guy's high school days and how he'd gotten qualified to be in the job that he's in and blah, blah, blah. And the whole time the guy was standing there in the window, not doing anything. And you're just telling me, you're just listing things about this guy. Whereas like with, with a lawyer, a fidgety lawyer who's sitting there in the booth number one you can do it really fast with dialogue rather than going into his mind and his memories and that kind of stuff to use the dialogue to tell me who he is as a person so how does he talk and what is he talking about if i could use the failed actor elvis guy even when he's thinking about things you can tell what kind of person he is because his new shop girl who works with him he thinks of her as the new girl. Like, I don't think he ever mentions her name. So you say to yourself, this is a guy who thinks of women as objects. So he's yeah. a bit sleazy. So rather than tell me that he's sleazy and go back into times in the past that he's been sleazy, just have him refer to her as the new girl. And it's things like an economy of words. Uh, use as few words in that scene as possible to tell me what he's like use his dialogue use the things that are around him to tell me what he's like like the Elvis chapel is really shitty the floors are creaky and the carpet is cheap and the you know the lighting is really bad and what does that tell me about him as a business owner it tells me that he's he's trying to make money it's all about money. This isn't about love and about getting these couples together and giving an amazing performance and it's not all of that stuff. For him, it's about spending as little as possible setting up this shop and getting the money from the punters. Mm. And uh, he's thinking in his mind about all these jokes that he cracks, which are really bad jokes, but he fancies himself 
as funny, as a funny man. So it's like, this is what I know about him so far. I know that he's a little bit sleazy. I know that he thinks he's great. I know that he's out to make money. You know, you can just kind of list things Mm. about him. Mm. And uh, he knew that making the joke about the moustache guy wasn't going to go down well with the moustache guy. Uh, he <laughs> yeah. knew that it wasn't going to land well, but he did it anyway because it entertained him. Yeah. So he's a bit sort of narcissistic. For me, I think that if you're going to have a character who only appears in the novel for a very short amount of time, they should be very interesting. They should be like a, a jewel, uh, that's little sparkly jewel that is extravagant because you couldn't, you couldn't have that character reoccurring and going through the novel for a really long amount of time, it would be, uh, as they say, too much molasses or whatever it is, too much mascarpone, I think they say. I don't know, something, a food starting with him. But it's, it's <laughs> my husband says it because he works in screenplays. He says too much mascarpone or too much, you know. Does, um, that, mean, does that mean sludgy? No, just too rich. Too rich, okay. Yeah, like too many truffle shavings. Ah, okay. <laughs> you can't eat a bowl of truffle shavings because they're too powerful. So you just have a little bit of truffle just on top, not too much. So I can have a character who's an Elvis impersonator, but I don't want to have him for the whole book because he's too rich. So I just give him, you know, four pages or whatever it is. In general, the more relatable a person is, the more time they should have in a book. So Homer Homer Carrington, the serial killer, he gets a big part because he's so interesting, but he not not the whole book because it would be exhausting. Now, Kyle Perry, author of The Deep, and well, The Deep is just about to come out, but and his the first novel was The Bluffs. Yeah. He's asked a question. The Chase has some great character moments that are so specific and unique that they ring like real life, like the spider Mm. in the ear story or the Elvis stabbing. Mm. Can you tell us some of the moments that were directly inspired by conversations with inmates and guards? Yeah, so there's heaps of stuff in there that is just sort of inspired by what I know about prisons because I've been around prisons since I was a kid. My father was a parole officer at a Sydney prison and he would come home with his various different stories about inmates and the terrible things they do. And also uh, the the day-to-day life of Lawrence Bittaker, writing to him over the years, I learned things about prisons. Like Lawrence, Lawrence was a bit of a moaner, so he would whinge about things and he'd say, somebody somewhere in the prison stole a crowbar and we don't know where the crowbar is, so the entire prison has been locked down for three days and the guards are saying, until we find this crowbar, you know, so everyone's pressuring each other, like, have you got it? Just give it up. What are you going to do with it anyway? It's a frigging crowbar, you know, and and so the day-to-day problems uh, that they have, I learned that directly from asking. So that influences the sort of things that, like, uh, Axe was talking about, like the guards really don't have a big tolerance for inmates acting up and they will punish you and they'll make you clean things with your toothbrush and stuff like that. There's a a little story about a guy in uh, the novel who ran over a cop and who was driving a stolen van full of televisions and he was trying to avoid the roadblock 
and he ran over a cop. And that is from uh, Lawrence's neighbour called Squirrel. And uh, and Squirrel had run over a cop and he'd apologised to the family and he was a, a drug addict and he had a van full of stolen goods. So I looked up the case and everything because I was hearing about Squirrel from Lawrence in the letters and saying, oh, Squirrel's really into crochet at the moment. He's crocheting all these different things and he's making beanies and he's run out of people to give them to, so do you want some? And I was like, sure, <laughs> I'll have, God. you know. And then I said, what did, what, did, uh, what did Squirrel do, you know? And then after Lawrence died, I wrote to Squirrel, you know, just to say, I know you guys are friends and I'm sorry for your loss. And so I, I, I wrote to Squirrel a few times and learned about his life and, the thing that I find being a crime writer is that people want to tell you their story. Uh, there's something about appearing in fiction which appeals to people. Cops and criminals want to tell you their story and that's great for me. And so Squirrel was telling me about having killed that police officer and I was like, what is it like being a sort of a semi-normal guy in prison? Because he, he's a drug addict. And he made a mistake. Hmm. He's not a monster. Uh, I think that there are three types of people who are incarcerated. There are monsters like Lawrence and there are people who make mistakes like Squirrel and then there are people who just are lazy and stupid and they commit crimes and that's the only way of life that they know. And I, I was sort of saying to him, what is it like being in a cell 23 hours a day next to someone like Lawrence and how do you deal with that and he said I just don't ask him anything about his crimes because mm. I know what he did but I don't otherwise I couldn't talk to him yeah, and I need someone to talk to in here so I sent Squirrel a bunch of crochet and knitting patterns because he can't get them oh, inside you're lovely uh, yeah I just felt sorry for him when I read yeah. about the case and everything the thing that Squirrel did that I respected is he apologised to the families. Yeah. Uh, the family of the cop that he killed. And I, you know, was always saying to Lawrence, why don't you just issue an apology? And he was like, oh, nah. You know, I wouldn't help and blah, 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 all the excuses about why he wouldn't do it. But he just wouldn't do it because he wasn't sorry. And he didn't like the idea of people making him do things. So specifically the, the spider in the ear story. So Homer Carrington hey. is the, the serial yeah. killer that poor Cradle mm. finds himself on the run with. Yeah. And he's like, how deranged is this guy? And mm. then Homer tells him the story about the spider. The spider in the ear story. I think I picked that up somewhere from something I was watching, the whole concept of having a spider in your ear. And I just liked that. I was like, that is so gross and horrible. Imagine having a spider in your ear. I'm going to use that. And I tried to use it <laughs> in Gathering Dark, actually, because the the main character in that is a paediatric surgeon. So I used it originally to talk about what a good person she is. So a kid comes in and the mum's like, he keeps telling me that his ear is itchy and I don't know why. Can you look in there? And she looks in there and she sees a, 
a black widow spider or something that he's picked up from going camping and she's like holy crap that's like the most venomous spider in you know the whole of the world and what the hell am i going to do and but she doesn't tell the kid and she doesn't tell the mum that it's in there because she doesn't want them to flip out and she just quietly deals with it and i i spoke to an emergency room nurse that i knew and i asked her what would you do and all this but it got cut it got cut from the novel it didn't work and so i i just tucked it away and i was mm. like let me use it let me use that at some point so i i used it to talk about homer carrington's relationship with his father and what a psycho his father was mm. and that happens to me a lot in life i just listen to people and their stories and I pick things up and I go, that is great. (laughs) But you just talk to people and listen to people of all walks of life and Mm -hmm. that's what I do. Uh, We're we're having some renovations done here at the house and there's a builder here and I am just always talking to him. You know, because I, because I, I work from home, so I don't get to talk to people a lot. I have no colleagues, and my husband Tim is like, you know, you go out there to take the guy a coffee, and then twenty <laughs> minutes later, I come out, and you guys, because I'm sitting there, and I'm going, what was the last place that you built, and what happened there, and oh, we had a pest person come as well, and I said to him you must see some amazing things as a pest guy. And Tim was like, we don't have time for this. Don't, <laughs> don't start. You know, because I was like, what about rats? You know, do you deal with rats a lot and trying to get weird kooky yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hilarious. builders, pest inspectors, cops, criminals, homeless people, your sister-in-law, what, whoever it is, you talk and you listen and your mind is constantly going, is there anything here that I can tuck away, you know? That goes to the concept of specificity, doesn't it? I listened to Marcus Zusak speaking about writing a few years ago, and he was talking about, you know, get down to the little details. The really little details are what Mm. adds credibility and brings things to life. He said, if I lost a jacket and I went to the lost property at the airport and said, do you have my jacket? You know, it's brown. Well... They'd go, well, we have got a a brown jacket, but how do we know it's yours? Yeah. And he said, if I go and say, look, it's a brown jacket and in the pocket is a tiny little piece of paper on which my child wrote a little love letter to me. Can you just have a look in the pocket? It just adds believability. It adds credibility. So he used that as an example, something like that as an example. And I think that's so true in in fiction, isn't it? Just bringing in those little details can really bring a scene to life. Yeah, it's it's it says a thousand things about the person by just just saying that little thing, you know. Uh, so instead, and it's not cliche if it's very very specific like that. Like I I could have said. Homer Carrington is a serial killer, so of course he had a terrible childhood. His dad beat him all the time. And you go, yeah, well, I've heard that story. I've heard about parents beating their kids a million times before. You know what I've never heard of is a dad who, like, makes up to his kid that they've got a spider living in their ear that he can control. Like, that is a whole other level of – so what I've told you is – 
a thousand things about homeless childhood by just telling you one thing. And and that's that's what you do whenever you're describing someone. Like just say just say that he, she had rainbow sequin shoes on. Okay, I know what the rest of her looks like because she's wearing rainbow sequin shoes. She's not wearing them, you know, with a business suit. The rest of her is probably freaking all done up as well. So just say a thousand things by saying the right one thing if you can. I'd like to talk about tension and microtension. So writing teacher Donald Maas says that microtension is the moment-by-moment tension that keeps the reader in a constant state of suspense over what will happen, Mm. not in the story, but in the next few seconds. Now, you do this very well, but is this something that you consciously focus on? And are there any examples from the chase where you've specifically done that or does it just come naturally to you, Candace? Well, you know, just being a genius. Uh, <laughs> well, there's having, that, of course. That goes without saying. I have this muse, right, who just tells me, no, 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 uh, no, it's very deliberate. Um, it's a learned thing. You have to have characters talking about stuff that you care about, you know, and, and what do you care about as the reader? Drama. Mm. So you've got a man and a wife um, they're talking in the kitchen. I don't want to tune in for the conversation that they have about what they're going to have for dinner that night. I want to tune into the conversation that they have about why they're not having sex with each other right now or or whatever it is. It, it's got to be juicy. And there's also creating tension by being aware that the reader is there the whole time and sort of placing dangerous things. Tim and I have extended the the phrase or whatever it is all the way out to its furthest limits, so I'm sure we're nowhere near the point anymore. But we talk about Chekhov's gun. Chekhov says that if you put a gun on page one, you better use it by page three or whatever and whatever the saying is but Tim and I are watching things and um, they'll just cut to this knife that's on the table and then they just cut away and they're they're just telling us that the knife is there and Tim and I go is that Chekhov's knife is that Chekhov's mention of another woman everything has meaning (laughs) yeah they're pointing to that knife on the table and telling us it's there and that creates tension by just i'm waiting for it to be used because you told me it was there you know and i i do that in a long game for things like uh walter keeper telling uh celine i'm a con man I'm a very bad man and I lie all the time and you've just invited me into your life. Like that was a dangerous thing to do. And she goes, oh, yeah, I've placed it now. I've Mm. pointed it out to you and now you're waiting. You're waiting for it. You just plant these little things and you let them grow and the reader knows that they're growing and they're waiting for that moment where you go, all right, it's ready ready to hatch, ready to harvest or whatever the metaphor is. Yeah, such Walter Keeper keeps 
such an interesting character, isn't he? Because I sort of wanted him to be a good guy and I think Celine wants him to be yeah. a good guy. And is he a good guy or is he? You know, you've got to read <laughs> the novel the to find out. But there are all these little hints throughout that could point either way because he is being upfront and honest about who he is and what he's done. The whole, usually at the end of a book, I look and I go, oh, this is what I was trying to say. And that's the part of uh, going back for drafts two and three and four, whatever, is figuring out what I was trying to say and then making sure I've communicated it properly. It's Celine's big struggle in life or her major malfunction is that something terrible happened to her and now she feels like her radar is broken. And that's a very scary thing to say to yourself is I don't know how to tell who's good and bad anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I have people in my life who I think are safe and nice and good who might turn on me like wild dogs at any moment. And this guy, John Cradle, who I, I have spent the last five years tormenting and hating the object of my hatred, maybe I was wrong about him the whole time. And that came from a terrible breakup that I had where I, my partner sat down one day after work and just ripped his mask off and revealed to me that he had been doing things that I had no idea about. And, and I just went, holy crap, I don't know you at all. And it was like the person that I thought I knew died right in front of me. And suddenly I was sitting in front of a stranger. And, I, and that's terrifying because it makes you look at everyone in your life and go, do I really know you at all? Can I trust you at all? And how do I invite new people into my life? And I was trying to talk about criminals as well because to research this book, I went to Lithgow Maximum Security Prison and I was standing there looking at all the inmates. And this is one of the most violent places in Australia, and it's full of the worst of the worst criminals. And I saw this young guy, and he must have been 22 or 23, and he was handsome as all hell. And I looked at him and I went, I thought to myself, what the hell are you doing here? Don't, like, how did you get here? With that face and that body, being so young as you are, don't doors just open everywhere you go? And why did you turn to a life of crime? Uh, and then you kind of go, well, that's exactly how we shouldn't think about criminals because <laughs> not just criminals, based on looks. Yeah, well, criminals aren't ugly and socially awkward and bad. Look at Ted Bundy. Yeah, exactly. If a guy says to you, hey, come for a ride in my car and it's a nice car and he's a nice looking guy and he's friendly you shouldn't get in no. <laughs> you know so you talked before about getting bogged down in the sticky middle of the novel what did you do to get yourself out How did of you do those bogs <laughs> yeah explain yourself yeah so you shouldn't think of the novel as one big episode because things will get boring it's tw 10 or 12 or whatever the number is, small episodes with one big connecting thing. So it's that, it's that A and B plot that go across the whole series. If you think of it like a television series, the, the, those things cook along for the whole series and they will start 
in episode at the start of episode one and they will conclude at the end of episode 12 but episode by episode and chapter by chapter you have to have these micro things that sort themselves out that that start in that chapter and end in that chapter and that's scene by scene and and chapter by chapter so so small things so trinity and celine have come to vloggerheads and they've had a confrontation about how they're going to work together on this project and they solve it by the end of episode two and they start working together. Celine and Keeps have a sexual chemistry in episode three and by episode four or five, they solve that. They sleep together. So you just present these little problems all the way along that are interesting enough that the reader likes to leap through those while they're waiting for this big thing this overarching thing to conclude. I think that aspiring authors get worried that things are sounding very, very complicated Mm. when they say to themselves, okay, not only have I got to have an A plot and a B plot and possibly a C plot, but maybe some vignettes as well and also these episode by episode or chapter by chapter complications. Like how is that doable? But you, you follow your own interests, Mm. Trust your own interests and follow them. So think about Ted in the uh, Crimson Lake series with his geese and every now and then I'm interested in what happens between him and these geese. So, you know, episode one, he finds them and rescues them. Episode two, one of them also almost gets eaten by a snake. You know, episode three, this happens. And there's just like this little ongoing relationship that he has and every now and then when I'm bored with the novel the major uh, plot line Mm. or I have a spare moment and I think what am I going to do I need some time to pass I need the afternoon to get eaten up in the timeline I'll just cut to Ted with his geese and what he's doing with them (laughs) because the reader does care about the geese I really cared about those geese yeah, I, 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 I was so surprised by the reaction. <laughs> Everyone's like, who are they going to cast as the geese? And I'm like, oh, they're interviewing geese family, families at the moment and auditioning them. And I've had people write to me and say, if anything ever happens to those geese, that's it for me. I'll never read you again. And I go, okay. Don't kill the geese. Save the geese not save the cats, save the geese, which leads me into my next point. You've talked in the past about the great writing advice you've received from uh, James Patterson or Jim, as you call him. Are we allowed to call him Jim? Sure. Um, He would love for you to call him Jim, I think. Thanks, Jim. (laughs) And that was make the reader care. I think that was one of the first pieces Mm -hmm. of advice he gave you, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. In the chase, we care about Cradle. We care about... Yeah. How How did you make us care, Candice? Oh, very obviously and deliberately with things like having him save Celine from being raped by that guy. And then he goes around and he saves another woman, that that woman that him and Homer abduct. So he saves two women in a row, (laughs) which is always endearing. Uh, But I I think that you are getting to like him... Earlier than that, when he is sitting in the cell 
and he's burning the sign. So he's rigged up a toaster into a soldering iron and he's making a sign. And Celine comes along and says to him, don't do that. And he's very sassy with her. Mm. So what have I told you about him by doing that? I've told you that he's clever, he's defiant, he's interesting. Mm. And, and that's making you start to care about him. And I've kind of suggested that he's handsome. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, that's what I've told you about him. Yeah. And hinting at a sense of humour there too. Just the yes, way he the interacts with her. Yeah. And you get the, the dialogue there is really uh, pivotal to, mm. to that scene. You've got to be really fast mm. telling the reader what kind of person you're dealing with. So in that same chapter, in those same few pages where I've told you that John Cradle is handsome, interesting, funny and defiant, I've told you that Celine is anxious and annoying and a, a by-the-books kind of chick and she's sort of powerful. She's a powerful woman. When you meet her, she's already telling you what she's like. She's stomping down the hallway. She smells smoke. She goes in pursuit of that. She talks to Cradle and then she goes in pursuit of, of who set up this toaster for him. So immediately I'm telling you things about her, that she's powerful and interesting and a go-getter. One of the things that I think aspiring writers really struggle with is backstory, mm. particularly because it's one of the things we think we need to add in order to make the reader care. Yeah. Do you have hard and fast rules when it comes to backstory? I think you should be giving the reader backstory from the moment you meet the character, really, because... You're telling me stuff about them and the way they are now. Right. And something has made them that way. And so you're just making the reader curious about, like, why is Celine so uptight? Something's made her like this. And she works with prison inmates and she's uptight about those prison inmates following the rules and doing what they're told. She's a bit sort of power hungry she's on a power trip with prison inmates so that's not normal where does that come from and it's particularly interesting when you meet a character who's not nice who's evil or bad you think what made you that way uh, you know like we never get to learn what happened to Hannibal Lecter why is Hannibal Lecter like that I talk about I talk about Hannibal Lecter a lot you know you know who I have always found very interesting if you ever watched Inspector Gadget, uh, there's Dr. Claw and he sits in the chair and you only ever just see the metal hand. Mm. But there's things that we know about Dr. Claw, like he has a cat, so he's a pet lover, and he has a doctorate, obviously, and he hates Inspector Gadget with a passion, like just constantly surveilling him and going after Inspector Gadget. There's something very personal there. I want to know his backstory. So if you tell me stuff that's interesting enough about the person now, I'm going to want to know where that came from. So create the desire first mm. to find out what the backstory is. And then I think just avoid slabs of backstory. So, you know, I could have trailed off and told you about Homer Carrington's childhood for 50 pages, but I would have been interrupting the current 
situation. Mm. So at that time when he's telling you about the spider in the ear, he and Cradle are in a plane and they're flying somewhere. And so I've got a small amount of time when they're in the plane to, to do it. And mm. so I just have to tell something small that gives me everything. Yeah, that goes to character rather than because we don't really yeah. need to hear 50 pages about the horrible Homer Carrington, do we? Because we don't care no. about him that much. We just I don't even know. And there's stuff I don't know. I don't even know where he's from. I don't know where he <laughs> we went to school to or what kind of, no, what kind of student he was or was he ever married or no. So, and the stuff that I tell you in the backstory slabs about John Cradle, they're all useful. I don't just cut back for a laugh. Uh, you know, you cut back to the moment where his son is born and his wife disappears mm. all in one day. And I just give you that day when that happened and then cut away again. So every time you go back for a big slab, make sure it's in a scene where something critical is happening, something very indicative of of what that person is like and why and they're cut away again. Yeah. You, you don't have time when you're in a backstory because if people are pa- impatient, if readers are impatient to know what's going on now, they're really impatient <laughs> to know what's going on if you've taken them back 20 years. They're like, why am I here? <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah. But mm. at that point, you've made us really wonder why. Yeah. What's happened to him? We want to know yeah. what's happened. Exactly. So you give information yeah. that we really want at that critical point of time. I mean, to the point where as you're reading through the novel, you're going, when am I going to get the next little mm. flashback into Cradle's past yeah. so I can find out what happened yeah, and his wife happened and his son and, and, mm, and ultimately yeah. whether he is guilty or not of, of mm. their murder. Mm-hmm. Candice, thank you. We've covered so much. <laughs> Thank you. That's been fun. I get some interviews which are like, what are you like as a person? And I get some interviews which are like, how do you do what you do? And I'm really enjoying these ones because it makes me feel like I'm helping authors, which I, 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 I want to do, try to help aspiring authors. And it also makes me analyse what I'm doing in my, in my life, in my world, and am I yeah. practising what I'm preaching Mm. Well, on behalf of all the aspiring writers and obviously the published writers out there as well who have been asking questions, thank you for taking the time out of what's been a pretty full-on publicity schedule, I understand, and I very much look forward to seeing you back in Write Club at some point when things calm down. Yeah, I will, I will. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, how good was that? I hope you enjoyed listening to Candace talk about her writing process. As I mentioned in the interview, she's incredibly generous to the writing community and, like she said, might be starting up with Write Club on Facebook again at some point. So make sure you follow her in all the places, including on her website, candacefox.org. Now, to our May book club pick. I first read this book in 2019 when it came out and I just loved it. I'm talking about Gravity is the Thing by Jacqueline Moriarty. This is a heartwarming story, but also has this gorgeous, warm, quirky humour. There's something about Jacqueline's writing style that really resonates with me, both as a reader and a writer. 
I was also lucky enough to do a writing workshop with Jacqueline. And let me tell you, she has this ability to unlock your creativity in a way that is almost magical. Afterwards, I thought, how did she do that? I went away and wrote up a storm. So inspiring. It's going to be a great interview. You can grab a copy of Gravity is the Thing from most online bookstores or your local bookshop. Remember, bookshops can also order in books for you if they don't have a copy, so don't hesitate to ask them. Here's the blurb. Abigail Sorensen has spent her life trying to unwrap the events of 1990. It was the year she started receiving random chapters from a self-help book called The Guidebook in the Post. It was also the year Robert, her brother, disappeared on the eve of her 16th birthday. She believes the absurdity of the guidebook and the mystery of her brother's disappearance must be connected. Now 35, owner of the Happiness Cafe and mother of four-year-old Oscar, who, side note, is just the most delightful character, Abigail has been invited to learn the truth behind the guidebook at an all-expenses-paid retreat. What she finds will be unexpected, life-affirming and heartbreaking. So there you go. Now it's not just me raving about it. Marion Keyes had this to say. Astonishingly wonderful and magical and moving and uplifting and different. I also loved the review by Jacqueline's sister, Leanne, who said, A brilliant, beautiful, hilarious, heartbreaking, extraordinary book. I say this without bias, only awe. <laughs> so... As usual, we have around three weeks to read Gravity is the Thing and think of all the questions we'd like to ask Jacqueline. You can find links to buy both paperback and ebook versions of Gravity is the Thing on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com and you can also leave your questions via the form on the website or pop them on Instagram or Facebook under any of the posts. You can also DM me if you prefer. Get your questions in by the 22nd of May. The episode will go to air on the 1st of June. One last thing I wanted to mention, I'll be doing some live interviews next month at Storyfest, which is a writers, readers and storytelling festival being held down on the New South Wales South Coast on the weekend of June 18 to 20. I'm so excited to be talking to four fabulous Australian writers, Meg Mason, Jessica Detman, Kelly Hawkins and Charlotte McConaughey. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The festival has an amazing lineup, including Marcus Zusak, Craig Sylvie, Richard Feidler, Wendy Harmer, Nikki Gemmel, Malcolm Knox, Tanya Plibersek, Rosalie Hamm. So many. It's going to be great. We've got over 40 artists coming across 22 events. It's going to be a most excellent bookish weekend. Have you ever been down to the Milton Mollymook Ulladulla area? It's gorgeous. It's only about three hours south of Sydney. We're talking long stretches of empty beach and charming village greens and delicious cafes and fabulous boutiques. There's a gorgeous winery down there. It's really the perfect spot for a weekend getaway with your partner or your book club or your writing group. So you can find the full program and buy tickets at storyfest.org.au. I'd love to see you there. Thank you so much for listening to Writers Book Club Podcast. You can find all the show notes at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And if you like these interviews, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Well, that's it from me for another month. This podcast was recorded on the beautiful lands of the Garingai people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Have a great month, happy writing, and enjoy Gravity is the Thing. Gravity is the Thing.